You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 32. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but, to sh- but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad. The great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that your but that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they, were, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us in it. And so God, we pray now that you would make us more and more like your son Jesus with his compassion, with his clarity on your holiness and our sin. God, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us clean. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to after. It's good to see you all tonight. Uh, Can you believe it that we are about to come up on the third anniversary of COVID disrupting all of our lives? Three years. Uh, It was March 11th 
that that famous video of Mark Cuban, the uh, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, sees on Twitter on his phone at the Mavericks game that the NBA has just suspended their entire season. He takes the phone over to the referees, and the game is canceled right away. I remember the next morning, Ryan Kelly, the the pastor at Desert Springs, uh, texted me that the Claris Conference, the big conference that Desert Springs hosts every year, was canceled. We're like, oh dear, all right, this is now a thing, it's real. Uh, The next day after that, we sent an email out to all of you that we'd be meeting on Zoom for the following Sunday, which we thought we would do for like two or three weeks. We were young and naive. Uh, Well, we learned a lot. We have learned a lot in the following three years. I'm certainly no epidemiologist like Walter. Is he here? Not here. He's he's not here, but he could teach us a lot. Uh, I think it's crazy. I think Walter would be really shocked if, you know, in like the beginning of 2020 or something, if he had imagined three years from now, from then, that we would now all be fairly fluent in understanding what Walter would mean if he used words like incubation period and asymptomatic carriers and immunocompromised and comorbidity, contact tracing, variants, or even words like spike proteins. That's crazy. I remember, remember learning early on almost three years ago, that there actually is a difference between isolation and quarantine. Isolation being separating someone who is sick away from the healthy, and then quarantine being separating people who may have come into contact with the disease to see if they actually then get sick. Who knew there's a difference between isolation and quarantine? Walter did. I didn't. Uh, Well, this next section in Luke's gospel is all about sickness and is all about isolation, healing, restoration, It's about the power of Jesus to cause an isolated outsider to be restored into the community and to belong to Jesus. So we're going to see this play out under three headings and movements of the story that Luke is very tightly holding together here in Luke chapter 5. That three things. Jesus brings three kinds of people in. That they are brought into touch, that they are brought into new life, and that they are brought in to belong. He is bringing people in. So first of all, that he brings, or people are brought in to touch. Last week, we saw Jesus exercise his authority over the demonic realm. We saw him exercise authority over sickness and fever, and even over creation, and causing this miraculous catch of fish for Simon. But where and for what is all of this authority for? Where is it heading? What is the benefit in people's lives, in his disciples' lives, of Jesus actually being Lord over creation, of him being Lord of heaven and earth? Luke takes the narrative forward with a man who comes to Jesus who was, into verse 12, full of leprosy. Now, leprosy today is known as Hansen's disease. It's an infection of a slow-growing bacteria in your skin that eats away at the skin, that eats away at nerves of the eyes and the ears. It is a terrible, terrible disease. But the term being used here, and like it's used in the Old Testament, is kind of a catch-all word for any kind of skin disease. We thought about leprosy last April when we went through the book of Leviticus, how there were categorizations of people. Either you are a clean, or you are in a clean state, or you are in an unclean state. Oftentimes, these were hygienic categorizations. 
and an understanding that many of these skin diseases were and are infectious, it actually makes sense from like a public health perspective to have such stringent rules for separation for people with leprosy, with a infectious skin disease. If this person is in and amongst the people, then not just that person, but now the entire community has this skin disease. So it makes sense to isolate. These people with leprosy or with any skin diseases were to live outside of the camp of Israel. They were not allowed to be with the people or to come near the tabernacle in the Old Testament. If anyone approached them, the person with this kind of skin disease was to shout very loudly, unclean, unclean. While this was not intended to be a way of bringing public shame upon themselves, it was in fact intended a way for the leprous person to love his neighbor to say, announce publicly, shouting, I have a sickness and I don't, I don't want you to have this sickness, sickness. I am in this state of uncleanness. I do not want you to be brought into this state of uncleanness. And again, while it wasn't intended to bring shame, can you imagine how difficult, how socially difficult, and yes, even humiliating, how shameful it would have been for a person to have to shout out, unclean. I am unclean. Do not come near me. If you've never seen the movie Ben-Hur, or if you have seen it, you'll remember this kind of thing from Charlton Heston's mother and sister, just now being socially outcast. If you haven't seen Ben-Hur, what have you been doing? Do that soon. But here comes this man who is full of leprosy. It's not like he has a couple of skin lesions here or there. Luke is saying he's likely got perhaps all-out Hansen's disease, ignoring all the rules that should keep him isolated and ignoring all the rules that should keep him outside of town. Because he has heard of Jesus, he has now entered the town. Now just imagine the shrieks and the screams, not from him, but from others as he approaches, as the people scatter. People are all shouting about him, unclean. And yet, he must get to Jesus. In the second half of verse 12 and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's not saying if you can, but if you will. He is not questioning Jesus' ability, but his willingness. In verse 13, Jesus stretched out his hand. Now, let's get back to where we were in Leviticus in April. If you were with us for that sermon, we actually turned to Luke 5 together when we were thinking about leprosy. And we noted about Luke 5, that one pastor, Ligon Duncan, says of this verse that every Hebrew, every Hebrew who is here in this moment, who is witnessing this moment, or perhaps reading of this moment in, in the generation or two after this, anybody who is witnessing or reading this moment, if you saw Jesus stretching out his hand, you would have shouted, no, Jesus, don't do that. Do not touch this man. Don't reach out your hand. Do not become unclean. If you touch him, you will become unclean. But the unexpected and the amazing happens here. Verse 13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus does not become unclean. The leprous man now becomes clean. The cleanness of Jesus cleanses this man. 
Jesus can do what the Levitical law, what the ceremonial law could never do. If you read Leviticus 12 through 15, there is lots and lots of instruction for what to do with an unclean person. But there is absolutely no instruction for what priests can do to make an unclean person clean. The only power and authority that the priest have has is to declare something that is already true. The, pr- the priest cannot make an unclean person clean, and yet that is exactly what Jesus does here. Jesus shows up and starts making unclean people clean, no matter their level of uncleanness, no matter the level of separation from others. And to go back, not to April of this last year when we're thinking about Leviticus, let's go back all the way to like March, April, and May of 2020, those first 10, 12, 15, 18 weeks where many of us barely left our houses. And when we did, when we encountered other people, what did we do? It was just an elbow tap or a a toe tap, maybe a fist bump. Do you remember, maybe late 2020, early 21, I don't know when it happened. Do you remember the first time back when you shook someone's hand, the first real handshake and how jarring that was? It's like, I forgot what that feels like. Even more, can you remember someone who is outside of your immediate family or household the first time you gave someone a real hug? Like, that feels good. Even those who might have not been big huggers at the time, to just embrace someone. That felt like belonging again. That lack of human touch was pronounced and difficult for us. Maybe, pushing it, maybe if it was six months We don't know how long this man had been ostracized from the community, but let's just assume that it had been years and years and years, and Jesus touches him. That someone would actually move to reach out and actually touch him. That jarring, maybe even electric, not because Jesus is doing something miraculous, but if any of us had not been touched, that electric sense of being touched by another No matter his history, no matter his shame, he knows that Jesus can heal him, and he does. Now, this man can touch others. He can go out and find his family and hug them. He can once again belong to the community. Now, we could have used the three subject headings that I've given us tonight of touch and new life and belonging. We could have used all three for all three sections here. He is actually being brought in to be able to touch one another, or touch others again. And by doing so, he, can, he has a new life ahead of him. And by doing so, he can belong to the community. But it is because of Jesus' touch that this formerly leprous man now has this whole life ahead of him, that he can now belong. But again, like he told the demons last week, Jesus tells the man here to not tell anyone what happened, which is just a weird thing. Some scholars call this the messianic secret. Jesus wants to keep who he is and what he's doing a secret. Again, he's likely wanting to control the timing of the opposition, which which he knows will inevitably come against him. He's trying to make sure that he is actually crucified three years from now at Passover in Jerusalem. But Jesus, what Jesus does tell the man to do is to go to the priest who again, can only declare that this man is clean, but he can declare it. Now he is socially clean because of the the priest's declaration, but then he'll need to go to the temple in Jerusalem. He's got a lot of work ahead of him. 
or he's, got, he's to make an offering of, of cleansing. And because of all of this, and just like in chapter 4, word keeps spreading and spreading and spreading about the power and authority of Jesus. But again, Jesus does not just set up a healing booth. He does not start printing flyers so that every single sick person in the area might be healed. In the second half of verse 15, the great crowds had gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would actually remove himself from the sick people. Like last week, we saw that he gently rebuked the sick, leaving them so that he could continue on in his real purpose of his ministry, of preaching and proclamation. And then this week, we see him leave the sick people behind so that he can pray. That's a weird thing. But prayer, communion with God, dependence on God, as we'll see, will be one of the most important priorities in Jesus' life. And if ministry, even if his compassion and mercy and healing ministry was coming before that in Jesus' life, his communion with the Father, then he just is totally willing to back on out of that for a while. So Luke keeps us moving. He's brought one man into touch. Now let's see him bring another man into new life. A similar story in verse 17. Luke is emphasizing how popular Jesus had become. Now he's bringing people into new life. In verse 17, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. There are real crowds gathering around him. Jesus' teaching ministry is getting just as big, maybe bigger even, than John the Baptist's, John the Baptist's ministry in the wilderness. And it's because of this kind of crowd that these men, bringing their paralyzed friend, they can't get to Jesus. The crowd is too big. But just like the man full of leprosy, nothing, even social expectations are going to keep them from getting to Jesus. They can't get into the house because it is absolutely jam-packed, so they go up the stairs, likely on the side of the house on the outside, and they take him up on the roof. And while Jesus is teaching inside, they start to bust through the clay tiles under their feet, causing undoubtedly a huge mess and a huge interruption inside from where Jesus is teaching. Think about it. Just imagine that you are inside this house and you see the dust start falling and then you see the rocks start falling and then you see the sunlight poke through the ceiling. Just think of the homeowner. Like, I get upset when I or one of my kids takes like a sharp corner of something and bonks a small gash into the drywall. Like, you either have to patch it, you have to pain over it, or you have to just learn to ignore it. If you're in this house, if you own this house, you're not going to learn to ignore a hole in your ceiling. Nor is, in this day and age, Allstate going to repair the cost. This is a scene straight out of one of those mayhem commercials. Like, I can just imagine, like, the paralyzed man being that actor in a suit, being, like, lowered down. And he's like, and if you've got cut-rate home insurance, you're on your own for trying to figure out a way to fix this. But again, these men, with their paralyzed friend, must get to Jesus, and nothing is going to stop them. And presumably, they would be more than willing, especially because we know where this story is going, to pay for any repairs after the fact. And so lowering him down, Luke tells us in verse 20, and when he, Jesus, saw their faith, saw their faith, when when we talk about faith in our culture, The way that we talk about faith, we say things all the time is like, well, at least I have my faith. Times are really hard right now, but at least I've got my faith. What is that? Faith 
if we were to define that and really work it out, faith, I think, is kind of like this internal, uh, unobservable emotion that kind of helps us keep a steady state of mental health. At least I've got my faith. It keeps me stable in my life. In other words, though, you can't see that. You can't see that faith. It'd be like saying, when they lowered the man down and when Jesus looked over and saw their zen, when he saw their good vibes, that, those kinds of things are not observable. But what he saw is their faith. Their faith isn't just an internal good vibe. It isn't a positive outlook on the world. Their faith is their utter and unstoppable belief in who Jesus is. I recently pushed someone in conversation gently, and this person said, at least I've got my faith. I pushed them to say, look, I know what you're meaning. I totally, I totally know what you're meaning. But while it may seem picky, I pushed him to say as, instead of saying, yeah, at least I've got my faith. Say, at least I've got Jesus. Times are really hard right now, but at least I have Jesus. Because it is, it is not our faith that saves us. Our faith actually doesn't do anything. You guys realize that? Our faith does nothing. It is Jesus who saves us. It is Jesus who does everything. It is our faith in him that brings us to put ourselves into his care. It is faith that moves us to put ourselves into his care so that he can save us. Not so that our faith can save us, which is exactly what these men have done. Jesus sees their faith. It is something internal, yes, but that moves them to get to Jesus. And so unexpectedly, both to us and certainly to the people in the house, Jesus responds with this. Luke tells us in verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. That's not what we expected him to say. They have not brought someone that we are led to believe is especially sinful. He's not someone who is isolated from the community because of moral failure. His sins aren't the reason that his friends have brought him to this house in the first place at all. Why did they bring this man to Jesus? Because he was paralyzed. This man didn't even ask for forgiveness of sins. But Jesus says the first thing out of his mouth, your sins are forgiven. Time and time again, Jesus will show us that the thing that we often come to him for is not what he actually cares about. The things that we come to Jesus in the first place for is actually not what he cares about. What he, while he is compassionate with those things and will often seek to relieve and heal physical or material problems, what he cares most about is deep. is an inner problem that is separating us from communion with God. The healthiest and the wealthiest person can still be separated from God because of sin. While the sickest and the poorest person can still find deep and rich joy in knowing God. So Jesus' first move is not to relieve sickness, is not to relieve uh, poverty. Those are just, they're, they're, they have nothing to do with our separation or communion with God. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us over and over again that it is often the sickest, the poorest, who recognize their need. More on that in a minute. 
But for now, while this man had faith in Jesus as a physical healer, he actually didn't know that he was coming to Jesus who is a deep and inner healer. He wanted his external body healed, not his internal soul. That's not why he's come. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins, the ways in which you have worshipped yourself over and against the glory of God and for the good of others, the ways in which you have ignored God, accused God, neglected God, defied God, the ways in which you have been unkind to others, the ways in which you have manipulated others, the way that you have been judgmental of others, the ways in which you have collapsed in on yourself in darkness and in self-centeredness. All of these things have actually brought separation from God, isolation from God, even condemnation from God. Sin is not just a place of inner turmoil or poor mental health. Sin is actual, identifiable, existential separation from the holy God of the universe. And yet, in all of that, and with all of that, Jesus says, forgiven. Gone. Done away with separated from God no more, but reconciled to God. I forgive you. Verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here's the problem as they see it. There is a way for sins to be forgiven. It is a serious and it is a meticulous process. For known and visible sins, you can go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. You can present an animal to the priests to sacrifice on your behalf. There are washings. There are cleansings. There are clear instructions and regulations from God, written down and handed down for generations, not the least of which only happens once a year at the Day of Atonement. Sins are finally and fully atoned for, covered for, forgiven, only on one day a year. Who is this who speaks blasphemies, seemingly throwing all of that out the window in disregard for God's word, in disregard for God's holiness? This is almost like if tomorrow morning I went on the UNM campus, like 10 o'clock or something, a busy time where there's lots of people, and I just started walking around and saying, your debt's forgiven, your student debt's forgiven. Student debt, how much you got? Forgiven, gone. Don't worry about paying it back. Why? Because I said so. Like, if someone from the registrar's office got wind that I was doing this, someone might come out from the office and say, um, no, all of these students still absolutely have to pay back their debt. You do not have the authority to forgive that debt. There is likely even a lengthy, lengthy congressional battle ahead of us of whether or not even the president of the United States has the authority to forgive student debt. So if even President Biden may not have the authority to walk around on the UNM campus forgiving debt, then I sure do not. And this is what these scribes and Pharisees are thinking. Who in the world do you think you are? To which Jesus responds saying basically... You don't think that I have this authority? After all, anyone can say your sins are forgiven without the authority to do anything about it. Anyone can say that. 
So, Jesus says, I'll do something that is more externally difficult to show you that I am actually able to do the real difficult part internally, that I have authority over the external and the internal, what is actually more difficult. In other words, the truth of the one will show the truth of the other. The truth of the external will show and validate my authority over the truth over the internal. So, to show you that I have authority to forgive sins, and here in verse 24, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man for the first time, a title that we'll think more about deep, more deeply later on. But he says, to show that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, verse 25, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Like the leprous man before him, this man has now a brand new life in front of him. That morning he woke up, likely like every single day in his life, unable to walk, unable to provide for himself, completely dependent upon the grace and the kindness of others to provide for him. And now he's able to walk. He's able to skip. He's able to jump. He's able now for the first time in years or perhaps the first time in his entire life to go to work, not just to take from others, but now perhaps for the first time in his life able to provide for others. And even more than the man with leprosy, and why this is even a more deeply new life for this man, his sins are forgiven. He doesn't need now to go to Jerusalem to have a sacrifice made on his behalf because here in this crowded house, he has met the Lamb of God. Newness, old to new, dark to light, death to life, externally visible and symbolically shown now by his ability to walk. His walking legs show what has happened inside his heart and his soul. In verse 26, an amazement sees them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Amazement. Even glorifying God by the crowds and the people that day. But have you ever, have you ever noticed what these people don't do in this very famous story? Have you ever thought about how they did not respond? They glorify God. It's a great step. It's a great first step. But if the people were seeing Jesus clearly and rightly, and then, because of that, seeing themselves clearly and rightly, what should their responses have been? Forgive our sins too. You can do it. You just did. Forgive us. You are the Son of Man. You have the authority over physical health and of inner separation from God. Forgive my sins. Bring us to God. But maybe just because they were all so healthy, maybe because they could walk and already felt an inner sense of belonging socially, that they didn't come to Jesus with the same kind of need. They didn't come to Jesus like the paralyzed man, unable to walk, unable to provide for himself, completely dependent upon the grace and kindness of others. And so, because of that, they didn't see their need in these things too. They didn't see their own dependent need for grace and forgiveness. Which now gets us to the final section, the response of Levi. We've seen some brought in to touch, some brought into new life, and now third, brought in to belong. This section that we have been in tonight actually follows an identically parallel structure to last week's section. 
in chapters 4 and 5, that, Luke, that Jesus shows his authority over the unclean. Last week, uh, with a man with a demon, an unclean demon. This week, with a man with leprosy. And then Jesus shows his authority over physical sickness. Last week, with a woman with fever. This week, with a man with paralysis. And this, and then we see here, last week, the same thing happened. Last week, we saw Jesus say to a future apostle of his, then to Simon, follow me. And now he says the exact same thing with Levi. His miracles are doing something. They're showing his authority in order to bring people in behind him, in his footsteps, in with him in fellowship, to become his disciples, to become like him. Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, the tax collector, who would write his own gospel account of the authority and grace of Jesus, verse 28, left everything. This tax collector left everything, just like Simon and James and John last week, and he, just like them, rose and followed him. We'll think more about tax collectors when we get to Zacchaeus in chapter 19, but following in the theme of this section, this guy, Levi, is an outsider of all outsiders. Not because of something that he had no control over, like skin disease or paralyzed legs, but because of something that he absolutely did have something to, or have control over. He had taken a job that now made it so that he had no home with his own people. His Jewish countrymen would have hated Levi because he was taking their money and he was giving it to the Roman overlords. He would take their money so that the Romans could have nice houses, that they could have good food and drink, and they could sustain their military machine. But while he had no home with his own people, he wouldn't have had a home with the Romans either. He was a Jew. He was beneath the Romans in their minds, both socially and ethnically. He was a man of no one. Maybe as John Lennon would have said, he's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Nobody. Nowhere, no people, no plans, no nothing. He does not belong to anyone. Like the man with leprosy, almost everyone would have likely avoided him. And who knows how long it had been since he had been hugged, since he had been embraced by anyone, by someone who loved him that he belonged to. But here, Jesus of Nazareth acknowledges this man, affirms this nowhere man, affirms the humanity of Levi, both with a word of acknowledgement and then an invitation. I see you. I want you to follow me. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how much you've stolen. I don't care who you've stolen from. I don't care what others think of you. I don't care what others think of me if they see me with you. I see you and I want you to follow me. Drop it all, man. Drop it all and leave it behind and follow me. Drop anything and everything that might prevent you from following me. Do it now. And just like Simon and James and John before him, Levi must know, must be with Jesus. And then just like we talk about in our membership class when we think about hospitality, the very first thing that Levi does here, that Matthew does, the very first thing, he does not immediately start to get to work on a worldwide mission strategy. He doesn't set up a nonprofit mercy ministry for the poor. He doesn't organize like a revival speaking tour for Jesus. He doesn't think to take him to Jerusalem. He doesn't think to take him to Rome. He just invites some people over to his house for a party. 
That's his first instinct and his first impulse at following Jesus is to invite others over. He has experienced the grace and kindness of Jesus and at expense to himself, maybe for the first time in his life, of giving out to others rather than taking from them, Levi wants to provide an opportunity for others to meet Jesus, to experience the grace and kindness of Jesus. And who does Levi invite? The people he knows, the people that are like him, a large company, including many tax collectors and, Luke tells us, other sinners. And again, the Pharisees are upset by all of this. But try to understand them here. It's very, very easy when we read these Gospels to look down our noses and shake our fingers and shake our heads at the, at the Pharisees because they're so self-righteous and religious and we would never be like them. This Jesus is hanging out with people who have spent their entire vocational life as traitors. As people who have made it their job to undermine Jewish life and culture for the promotion of Roman life and Roman culture. Maybe the best that I can come up with is if like Jesus were living in 1939 Nazi-occupied Norway or something. And Jesus started regularly hanging out with the Norwegians who had been stealing and giving to the Nazis. Those who were informing and selling out their Norwegian countrymen to promote the Nazi cause. I think we, I think most Norwegians would understandably be a little miffed, would be pretty upset with Jesus for hanging out with the traitors. Does Jesus hate Norway? That's a question I think that I've never asked. Uh, go with me on this illustration. Uh, does Jesus hate Norway in this illustration? Is Jesus, <laughs> is Jesus actually for the Nazis? Strike that from the record. Uh, does Jesus here hate the Jewish people of God? Is Jesus actually for the promotion of the Roman oppressors? Because it sure looks like it. He's hanging out with the people who actually are for the Roman oppressors. These are the people he's hanging out with. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors, with sinners? And the word grumbled here is the same word used of the people in the wilderness, in Exodus, and in Numbers. There is discontentment. There is a lack of understanding. There is a lack of trust in God. And here they are doing the same thing. If this is the movement of God out in the wilderness or here with the tax collectors, if this is the movement of God, I don't like it one bit. But verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What's astounding about this story in the line of these three little sections that we've gone through tonight, what's astounding about this story is that he calls these people sick, not the man with leprosy. He healed him of uncleanness, he never said, I will heal you of disease. I will make it so that you can once, once again live with God's people. He did not call the paralyzed man sick. He forgave him of his sins. The healing of his legs was just an added bonus to the truly miraculous work that he had done within. But now, as opposed to the first two men, we have a bunch of people who have come to Jesus who, it appears, have nothing wrong with them physically. They are likely the wealthiest and most physically capable people in all of chapter 5. 
And it is them that Jesus calls sick. When they come to Jesus, now Jesus finally calls himself a a physician, a doctor. This is the first time he's called himself a doctor in this whole string of miraculous healings. Not before, but now. When and why do you go to the doctor? When and why? When you realize three things. I'm sick, I need help, and I can't do it myself. That's when you finally get in the car and go to the doctor, when you try everything, everything else that the internet has suggested. When you are without answers, when you are without remedies, maybe even when you are scared, you go to the doctor. You recognize that there is someone who knows more than you. Someone else outside of yourself who can heal you, who has wisdom, who has abilities, maybe even has tools that you do not have. That's when you go to the doctor, but you have to be brought to a place of that kind of lowness, of desperation, that I can't do it myself, of realism, of acknowledging your need that you go to the doctor. You cannot be healed by the doctor until you first come to him. You cannot become a disciple until you first understand and recognize that there is much to learn. And so Jesus says in verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He is not saying that the scribes and Pharisees are righteous, that there is nothing they need to be forgiven of. The rest of Luke will show us that that's not the case. But in the same way that it would be a waste of a doctor's time to like go to work, uh, Mark the cardiologist, Mark goes to work today at the mall, or he decides he's going to go to work today at um, a New Mexico United game. There might be an instance at the New Mexico United game where something happens and his skills and expertise are very much needed. But when you go to the mall or to a park or to a soccer game, everyone is energetic. Everyone is excited. Everyone is feeling great. There's no one there to heal who first recognized their need to go to the doctor. And in the same way, Jesus is saying here, I have come for the sick. I have come for the lowly who recognize their need, who have gotten onto the bottom, bottom, bottom floor elevator of humility that I might rise them up. And here's the best part. Jesus does not offer placebos. Not one time. He heals. He forgives. He restores. But as we'll see with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he actually calls sinners to repentance. He's not just going out and finding the roughest people in town to hang out with them. He's finding rough people in town who recognize their need and come to him to repent, to turn, to be with Jesus, to have a changed new life, to be brought in to a new life. He's calling outsiders to himself, which is absolutely now our call as disciples who follow in his footsteps, to welcome those who feel like outsiders to now belong to Jesus. In hospitality, what's that root word? What's another word that, we, that sounds like hospitality? Hospital. To invite others, to bring others in hospitality to meet the physician, to meet the doctor, to have the sick be healed, to have the sick have their sins forgiven, to recognize that we were and have all been outsiders, that there is none who is righteous. No, not one. And yet Jesus' invitation to us, his invitation to others through us, is to no longer be an outsider, to belong, to leave everything that is preventing you from being with Jesus, and to repent, and he will respond. Lord, if you will, 
you can make me clean. This is the demand even that every single one of us either have made or can make to Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean. I will, he says, be clean. He will bring you into touch, to proximity with others. He will bring you into new life. He will bring you in to belong to his people and to himself. He's a good physician, healing more than we initially come to him to heal. But he's healing both inside and out, and he is a God of all authority. He's a good God, it's a good, he's a good Savior, and he's a good Christ Messiah. We're just now, if you're visiting with us, perhaps you're walking through the Bible for the first time, we're getting to know his character and his authority even more. Next week, next Sunday, he will show his authority over even more. His authority over the Sabbath, his authority over fasting, all many good things. So read these next verses up through... Uh, 616, we'll get through next week. So maybe read that a few times this week and let's worship and come to our great Savior, the physician of our souls, with even more expectation and and anticipation next week. But until then, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the good doctor. You know our needs. You know our frailties. You know our diseases. You know our sicknesses. You know our sin. You see them all and you have come to us. You have come to us in your incarnation, in your humanity, to know us, to touch us, to forgive our sins. So we worship you, Lord Jesus. Help us more and more to, in, in seeing your authority, and seeing your compassion, and seeing your wisdom and ability, help us to, like your first disciples, to leave everything, anything that may be preventing us, Make clear to us the things that are preventing us from knowing you, Lord Jesus. By your Spirit, give us the conviction, the resolve to come to you, to leave these things behind. Even with false starts and and face plants, even. By your grace, cause us to become more and more your disciples, walking in your footsteps, extending your hospitality to us, to others that all of us former outsiders might be brought in, brought in to know you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.